This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Ed Reed. Welcome to our podcast in association with Renewable UK. Uh, apologies to those tuning in, hoping to hear the dulcet tones of our esteemed uh, editor, Alistair Thomas. But rather this week, I'm joined by Asia editor, Damon Evans, and, and content editor, Andrew Dykes. Damon, we're going to start with you. Um, I think you know, we've, we've discussed a lot about uh, Russia and Ukraine and the sort of supply implications. So tell us about something else going on in another part of the world. Yeah. Hi, Ed. Yeah, it's been a, a busy week with news on the Myanmar front in Southeast Asia. Uh, As most of you will know, last year there was a military coup. um, And since then, the junta have been controlling the country. They've been um, suppressing uh, uh, demonstrations against their, I suppose, what you'd call an illegal coup. They've been killing, you know, I think over a thousand civilians have died in the past year. And and so the general operating environment and the reputational risk has made the country unpalatable to the, the international oil companies. Um, in January, Shell and, sorry, not Shell, I mean Total Energies and Chevron announced they would be exiting the strategic Yadana gas field offshore Myanmar. The field supplies a, a, a big share of chi- Thailand's gas. I think about 10% of Thailand's gas demand is supplied from this field. Um, Thai upstream company, which is partly state-backed, PTTEP, uh, also a partner in this field. And Chev- uh, sorry, Total announced that it would be doing a, a rapid exit within six months. So by July, it was going to get out and the remaining partners, as per the contract, would inherit its share for free pro rata. Um, it was unclear who would take over operatorship, but uh, the Thai player uh, PTT Exploration and Production was the, the natural company to do that. And this week they announced they will be taking over the project in the interests of their national security and maintaining production from the field. Um, and, and curiously, so we, I, oh, I should say I wrote a story about Chevron was looking at a different kind of exit strategy, uh, which I wrote earlier this week, and they're looking to exit the project in a commercial transaction. So that means they want to sell their share of the project to someone, rather, and and that is, and they will exit the project based on 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 that time frame when they find someone to take over. This contrasts to Total Energies, which set a firm deadline, and. Um, and I think, um, as I quoted in the story, one of, one of Chevron's concerns was they wanted to influence who would take over the joint venture, who would lead it. They wanted to have some control over that. And, I don't, and they also didn't want MOGE, which is a state-backed Myanmar company that has a share in the project, to get a, a greater share of the project at no cost, which is happening via the total exit. Um, and then yesterday, Total released a statement saying they are making a, a responsible exit from the project. Um, I don't know if they'd read our story and got upset by it. Uh, that's uh, a possibility. <laughs> and it's turned into a bit of a PR battle, I think, between Chevron and Total. And I shouldn't laugh. It's a very serious situation. But what I do find slightly amusing is the way the companies are, I suppose, having a bit of a a tussle over the, the PR ramifications of this. Uh, I note Total said that it is um, 
that Chevron has also decided to take over Total Energy's equity share, thereby increasing its stake in Myanmar. As a reminder, in light of the exceptional situation, Total Energies has chosen to withdraw from Myanmar without seeking any financial compensation for its assets. And, and Total went on to say that you know, it's doing due diligence to ensure a responsible withdrawal for its stakeholders in the country, particularly its employees and the local communities that have been supported by Total you know, through the, the many decades it has operated there since 1992. So, um, yeah, so, so that's what's going on in, um, in Myanmar, the, a bit of a tussle over the PR fallout between the two, the two super majors, uh, kind of a contrast to what's going on in Russia, I suppose, with, with Total Energies, and I know we're not supposed to be talking about the energy crisis in, <laughs> in, in that part of the world, but... Um, <laughs> Well, it's a vain hope. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's interesting because uh, one, one industry source mentioned to me that Total has this reputation recently of cutting fast and loose from a project. And I can't remember whether that project was in Africa or in, or in the Americas, but they said once Total made up their mind, that was it. They made a, a rapid exit. And um, it's in, you know, I think uh, clearly Total has you know, come under a lot of external pressure over Myanmar in the past year. Um, and it and it has felt the pressure was too, you know, it, the reputational risk was better for it to leave this way rather than stay and um, still get a lot of flack for its position in Myanmar and, and supposedly funding, indirectly helping to finance the military regime. Um, you know, the question is, I mean, uh, Total said, you know, we've decided to withdraw because we feel we can no longer make a sufficiently positive contribution to the country. The question is, is, is it better off? Would, would the country have been better off with a, a French company like Total still in place versus uh, the Thai company who's getting a, a bigger share of the project operatorship, which is arguably less transparent um, and the the local Myanmar entity getting a bigger share, so it, it, it's interesting the two approaches to it. I mean, and I'm sure Chevron and Total have their, their what, what's the word? You know, each have their motivation for the way they're doing things. But. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you know, kind of picking up on that sort of Chevron point, which, as you say, is is, is rather different. And I suppose obviously there is also that parallel with, with with Russia, which you were sort of noting with obviously that sort of exodus of, of sort of major Western companies, Total Energies aside. Um, saying that they no longer want to be part of it. And, and I guess there is a question about how to manage that transition. So, I mean, when you when you look at that sort of Chevron approach about they're saying, you know, they want to do due diligence, they want to, uh, you know, make sure it's a sort of a responsible transfer. Do you think that that holds water? Or is it just, you know, do you think that clearly they just want to get paid for their uh, for their, for their work? They don't want to leave sort of uh, with, with, with nothing in their hands? It's difficult. I mean... The cynic in me thinks that, you know, Chevron, you know, that they, they, they've got, a, I, think I think they're valid in what they're doing. If they'd followed Total and given away their, their share for free at the same time, now it would basically be the Thai company and MOGE, the state-backed Myanmar company, would basically control the whole project and have a much bigger share. So I don't know if you can say that that is a good thing, even though Chevron and Total would have exited and washed their hands of it. Um, I think what might happen now is that Chevron is in a bit of a corner and 
if they suddenly were able to sell their stake for um, Reistad estimates it's worth 200 million to 250 million, obviously they're probably not going to get that because the only buyer who would take the reputational risk is probably PTTEP because they're already there and you know maybe maybe they might just sell it to PTTEP for some nominal figure like I don't know a thousand dollars or a dollar which would which would uh, prohibit the Myanmar entity from you know getting a bigger share so that 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 could be a a nice way out for Chevron, I think. Now, I mean, are we entering a, a golden age of responsible exits? If you're like, <laughs> like, obviously, Russia's just been the story for the past two weeks, but is there kind of this, you know, is that spurring this this drive to be seen to be kind of the responsible company? Do you think? I think you know that's a great point because I think Myanmar, we're like six to twelve months ahead of where we are in Russia, and all these companies announcing their exits, but how how does it actually work in practice? And 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 who benefits from it. And I think Myanmar has given us a glimpse into the future of what we're going to say, see on a much grander scale in, in Russia. And, and, and I think there's, you know, that kind of question about sort of responsible exits. I mean, I think we've all, we're also seeing, we've, we have seen sort of similar things before, haven't we, where uh, super majors have been selling off uh, assets which might have, you know, too high carbon emissions. You know, BP in its, uh, in its Alaska sale, for instance, a lot of that was driven by the, by the, the kind of re- related kind of carbon intensity. And there is that question about should they have sold it off or should they have just sort of shut it down and, and, and halted emissions entirely? I think that's, that's probably a good point to, to, to take a pause. So we're going to take a short break, but then we'll be back to hear a, a bit more from, uh, from, from Drew and some, some issues uh, closer to those European energy security issues that we started with. Energy is going through seismic change. This will be driven by people, attracting new talent and reskilling the current workforce. Our Net Zero Workforce event, held online and at the Chester Hotel in Aberdeen on the 29th of March 2022, will explore the opportunities and challenges in the great energy skills transition and connect leading corporates, educators and innovators with the workforce of tomorrow. Free registration for virtual attendance and tickets for the physical event will be available soon. But right now, we're looking for sponsors to join the event panels to debate this critical issue. Our event partners have the opportunity to project their leadership on energy skills transfer, help set the just transition agenda with the wider industry and legislators, and speak directly with talent that can shape their future. For details of sponsorship opportunities, email ryan.stevenson at energyvoice.com. Details are in the episode notes. So, Drew, welcome to the show. Obviously, you've you've, you've made your presence known in in the, in the first section. Uh, but uh, tell us about uh, tell us about what's going on in uh, in, the, in the North Sea in the UK and its uh, energy security woes. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, it's, it's good to be here. I'm I'm a white guy in my thirties, so it's definitely time I had a podcast. I've been feeling that for some time. <laughs> um, yeah, so I know you've been talking for the past uh, couple of weeks about the European energy situation uh, and more increasingly the the North Sea and kind of its role in it. Um, it's been a busy week for. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, I imagine every week is a busy week, but this one especially so in the energy sphere. Um, So Monday saw him host uh, oil and gas CEOs uh, in a a meeting. We saw uh, Bernard Looney attend, we saw bosses from Harbour, Equinor, and uh, and Deirdre Mickey from the head of the Offshore Energies Association as well. Um, So they've been brought together to kind of talk about the North Sea's role in in fostering the UK's energy independence, really. the main reason for the meeting seemed to be uh, finding ways of boosting the supplies of domestic gas, which is obviously very close to the 
the UK's the heart of the UK's energy problem really is is, is replacing Russian gas, which we uh, Kwasi Kwarteng set out that we would do last week. It's about four percent of of uh, UK gas supplies come from Russia, and uh, and eight percent of the UK's oil supplies. So there's this, this kind of key question of how we we fill that gap from from other global producers and from um, from natural from domestic resources as well. Um, so he followed up that meeting with with an op-ed in the Telegraph. Um, in which he kind of set out some some pretty good points. I thought um, I can't you know personally describe myself as much of a fan, but he made some very good good points in terms of an all of the above energy strategy. Um, you know, he talked about permanently reducing the cost of energy at source um, to make it less kind of vulnerable to, to manipulation by others. You know, name checking Putin, but also you know the the forces of the market. I think as well the idea that kind of renewables being a little bit more predictable than these kind of fluctuating oil and gas prices that we're seeing. Um, and and saying that at the heart of it, uh, you know, green energy was was the centerpiece of this strategy, um, which we'll be setting out. So supposedly any day now. I mean, we'll see what happens next week, but um, you know, this the strategy is coming. Um, and and also one thing I was sort of particularly impressed to see is, is heading off at the past this idea that net zero is is behind the the rising costs, um, which we've seen kind of recently in the UK with an, a campaign that's been started by people like Nigel Farage and. Uh, uh, the net zero pressure groups that we've seen evolving within the Tory party. Is this is this when they're they're calling for another referendum? Yeah, that seems to be the latest demand. Um, and they, again, they're kind of trying to link the uh, the fluctuating and volatile prices, especially that we've seen in, in domestic prices, with this drive for net zero, which is kind of very cynical, you know, political land grab, I think. But we'll see if it pays <laughs> off for them. Um, but obviously, the, the, you know, the meeting on Monday has uh, kind of stuck in his head, and, and there's a line in this this op-ed. You know, it's time to give investors more confidence in British hydrocarbons, which I think uh, couldn't have been written better by some some lobbyists <laughs> uh, if they'd if they'd handed it to him. Indeed, indeed. But so, in just just in terms of that sort of you know question about supply, I mean, obviously, I guess you know thing you know the weather seems to be improving. I'm looking out my window; the sun is shining. But uh, I, I mean, I think you know in terms of that sort of short term delivery, to what extent can the can the can the uh, the esteemed bosses of uh, Equinor and BP and, uh, and 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 others you know provide more gas in the in the short term? I think this is the crux of it. it the short term solution, um, very little really. I mean, we're talking about exposure to kind of widespread global wholesale pricing of which they have very little control and we also saw um, a union this week kind of call for a, a reserved portion of, of energy supplies from the north sea to to be put into a kind of pot that could only be bid for by um you know domestic suppliers to kind of try and keep prices down quite a radical you know approach um not something that i personally think is particularly viable but you know people are really trying to to push all these kind of different solutions but I think that is the problem. It's something you alluded to last week, you know, with insulation and energy efficiency. I was going to go on to say that's um, one of the only things that was missing from this op-ed was kind of these immediate, more short-term solutions that we could start taking on the demand side rather than these supply-led solutions, which seem to have been kind of dominating the narrative so far. Um, he, he followed up this, this uh, op-ed, obviously, then later in the week with a, a trip to the UAE and to Saudi Arabia, supposedly with this kind of drive to to foster some kind of uh, support among the Gulf for Britain's new kind of energy strategy, I guess, and, and 
possibly looking to fill some of these supply gaps. I did, did I mean I suppose there's that question I mean, I suppose you know reference to you know sort of external actors you know he talked about Mr Putin. Uh, do, do do you think that that uh, do you think that he can say you know we need more energy independence and at the same time the same week you know a couple of days later go to Saudi and uh, the UAE and say hey guys how about uh, you you send a few more tankers our way is is that maybe a bit of a cognitive dissonance? <laughs> I think it definitely is. I mean Obviously, he arrived, um, was kind of very well publicized. There was a, a very, I think, one of the largest executions in, in Saudi Arabian history at the weekend before he arrived. Um, he's kind of arrived talking about kind of getting away from, from dictators and from being, as you say, influenced by external forces to, to you know, another potentially problematic relationship with, with uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, he was asked about working with, with the Saudis and with their questionable human rights record. He did say, you know, and I quote, I've raised those issues many times since I was foreign secretary and you'll raise them again today. Um, however, you know, a Tory MP for his own party did say that kind of going there and, and talking about energy spy strategies with Saudi left him with exquisite difficulties. I suppose it's that kind of question about sort of that, that sort of short term supply, isn't it? I mean, I, I suppose, as you know, as as, as noted, the, the North Sea, I suppose, can't really provide that much more in the near term. But Presumably, Saudi and the UAE could uh, could increase production, and I think you know. I suppose that 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 uh, Mr. Johnson wouldn't be the only person calling for uh, a, a bit more oil production in these difficult times. I think I think it also highlights the perhaps the short sightedness of energy policy in the UK. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, Europe, maybe Europe more so than the UK has heavily been heavily reliant on Russian gas and energy for several years, and and. The, the possibility of a um, conflict with Russia has has been there. It's not just appeared all of a sudden, and then you have these um, all these quick fixes being proposed. But you know, you've, you, I, perhaps the government has to take some responsibility. And and could it have foreseen this and managed this better? Because I mean, I think last November they didn't want to talk to oil and gas executives, and you know, it's quite a you know a u-turn yeah i think i think that's fair i I I think i would say the optimism you know i think there is optimism in the sense that it's clearly recognized that you know everything is going to be needed i've I've seen kind of nuclear now rear its head again on the domestic front which has kind of been out of the picture for a couple of years um you know and i think this this all of the above type strategy is very important you know we we kind of can't really afford to leave avenues unexplored and i think Clearly, the North Sea is part of that. I think uh, there's a little bit of perhaps kind of show of faith and, and support in hosting this kind of summit meeting on Monday to show that, you know, the North Sea will continue to have a place. But it, I think it is clear that, as you say, there's no there's no tap to turn on to kind of unleash this wave of, of gas supplies that will immediately bring down prices. And even if there was, the, the, the amounts that we're talking about aren't enough to kind of move wholesale global forces with, that we're seeing. Um, but yeah, it it will uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays into the the supply strategy announcement that's uh, going to be announced in the coming weeks. I mean, it does, as Damon says, it does feel incredibly knee-jerk, doesn't it? Uh, and I suppose it was that thing. I think, I mean, I suppose the government and you know the industry even got complacent when when prices were so low. Um, you know, when when gas prices were incredibly low, when when oil was you know under fifty dollars a barrel. Did 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 people really sort of have to think that they had to worry about the sort of the long term implications? And I think I guess the, the other thing is that the you know energy policy is always uh, 
incredibly hard to do either because it's it's either there's it's there are low prices and there's no sense of urgency or prices are high and it suddenly feels like the sky is falling in doesn't it um so it's just sort of vacillating between these two extremes of, of sort of running around and doing nothing i think also that that points to that kind of the long running uh debate that you hear about the, the so-called cost of renewables you know this this idea that they're subsidized and there's all this high upfront cost but but you know really that sort of has proved to be a sort of slightly preferable strategy at least you kind of know what you're headed in for even if it's slightly higher than you would like as opposed to this kind of continually rising situation that with a lot of unpredictability and volatility yeah i mean it's it's, it's interesting that renewables which often get described as sort of you know uh, intermittent uh, were sort of seen as a sort of a source of stability and i guess you know as we as we move into it uh, further and, and 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 away you know possibly from hydrocarbons um, it'd be interesting to see how that sort of works out and, and and i suppose you know the energy storage sort of part of the puzzle which uh, which i guess is 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 still uh, feels like a like a like an like an like an uphill battle, but one that will continue to be fought. I, just, I think that's probably a good point to to, to pause this this part. Uh, but we'll be back uh, for uh, a little bit of discussion from me about South Africa. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Excellent. So my favourite part of the show, the point where I get to uh, talk ad nauseam on a, on, a, on a subject of my choosing. So this week, um, very interestingly, you know, we, we, we've been sort of talking around that sort of energy security question. And I think, you know, try as we might, we, we, we try and, you know, kind of get, you know, move on from the sort of the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict. But it, it kind of keeps on sort of, you know, rearing up, doesn't it? And I think, you know, the, the energy security question is, is, you know, runs right through every discussion around energy. Uh, from 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 Damon's uh, question around you know the sort of the Thai involvement in in Myanmar, obviously in the UK that kind of question about the North Sea and the extent to which local supplies can 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 ramp up to meet uh, new demand, and also South Africa, which you know has been so reliant on uh, on on coal fired generation, which is you know becoming. Uh, Politically unfeasible, environmentally unfeasible, financially unfeasible, frankly, and 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 this week we saw a really interesting deal between uh, Ivanhoe, which is a sort of a Canadian mining company, and a and a, and a small, well, a smallish uh, gas producer, an LNG. Uh, future LNG producer in South Africa. So it signed a deal, took a stake in uh, in, in a company called Renogen, uh, which is uh, working on a small helium and uh, LNG project in, 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 uh, in the Virginia gas project. It's due to start, I, I believe it's due to start in April. So it's uh, pretty soon that uh, the, the gas is going to start flowing. And initially that, that gas is going to be, the, the LNG is going to be used uh, for mostly for transport. But Ivanhoe kind of came on board with this longer term view of um, securing reliable energy supplies for their miners. 
Um, so obviously, at a point where South Africa's uh, grid is largely coal-fired based, uh, I think it's somewhere between 75 and 80% of South Africa's grid comes from coal fire. Obviously, the carbon emissions from that are horrendous, uh, which is why the UK, the US, the EU signed on it at uh, the COP meeting in Glasgow last year to try and move South Africa slightly further away from, from coal-fired generation and, and, and towards uh, more sustainable sources. Obviously, the outside world hopes that you know, renewable energy will be the, the cure to uh, South Africa's energy woes. And they've they've had substantial successes. They've they've, they've closed. Uh, I think it was Window Five recently, and that's moving along. Where they're getting more solar and more wind, and more in the in in the, in the pipeline. But at the same time, you know that they they the South African government is keen to keep all of its options open. It's 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 talked about uh, you know continued investment in coal. I believe it's 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 hoping to to add another. 1500 megawatts or so of coal-fired generation in the next you know sort of start you know going down that road in the next couple of years so coal is is going to play continue playing an important part in the in the country's energy mix and this is a problem for for you know for well for us all i suppose with our with our hopes of, of, of stopping climate change but but also for corporates who are trying to move away from carbon emissions who've made net zero pledges and um Ivanhoe has made commitments in this area, and it sees uh, LNG as providing a way to, as a sort of a stopgap measure between moving it away from this reliance on grid power, which is coal power, uh, into cleaner burning gas. So Ivanhoe's taken a, a stake of just under 5% in the, in the, in the first instance. Uh, but there's it, it sort of set the stage. It's a sort of a precursor to a bigger deal where this mining company may buy up to, I think, 55% in, in, in Renogen and, and then also uh, provide funding for a second phase uh, of, of, of LNG production at this, uh, this South African company, which... I mean, obviously, the you know the decisions haven't been made. Feed will need to be you know carried out and that sort of thing. But I believe the idea is that you know they're going to be aiming for for sort of gas, maybe sort of twenty twenty five ish. And so I think it's a really interesting idea about the way in which you know we 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 discuss energy transition in different ways. And I think you know there is this. I suppose there's a growing acceptance in the UK that a move you know immediately to renewables is going to be challenging uh you know given grid stability issues but also that question about how you ramp up those needs and in south africa i mean i think that this this is uh frankly it's been more evident for more time i mean i think the western world has been talking about this move away from uh, hydrocarbons for a while and obviously that's proved uh, proved, proved some made some made some difficulties for South Africa and other countries in in Africa hoping to provide more power generation for their people um but you know maybe maybe the uh, the the UK is is coming around to this idea that uh, you know gas has a part to play andrew what do you think i mean do you think that uh, we might see a point where the UK government steps in to help uh, more gas fired projects in uh, in africa i mean we've seen obviously the the UK export finance restrictions as much as gas is seen as a transition fuel, I'm not sure how much longer that appetite will remain, um, especially given, as we've seen, that the volatility of pricing. I mean, my, my question would be is how, how much um, 
how much benefit does this provide in terms of the exposure to LNG as, as exposure to, you know, potentially unreliable grid power for, for this this mining company in terms of pricing i mean I I, I I i mean i suppose that is a question that would would have to be worked out through some sort of sale and purchase agreement but presumably i mean i think so they've got sort of uh, you know an option to be sort of the off taker from the phase two production of this lng project and obviously i suppose it's a it's a it's an attractive way of sort of locking in those supplies i mean i think you know, I agree. If they were buying LNG on the global market, then that would be obviously you'd be exposed to I don't know Brent, probably maybe Henry Hub, maybe TTF, JKM, whatever. Which obviously you're going you know bananas at the moment. I think JKM last time I saw it was something like fifty dollars uh, an mm BTU. I remember you know sort of what three years ago it was it was it was maybe four. So I mean I think you know it's it's an extraordinary uh, change in, in LNG pricing. But I suppose I think that's the appeal, isn't it? If you can lock in that supply apply early on which you know i mean i suppose you know what 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 applies to uh you know sort of a, a south african miner you know damon we talked about this last week about lng pricing into europe and those those sort of shortcomings in terms of long-term deals uh do, do, do you think that there are lessons to be learned from this uh, sort of strategic approach well yeah look it seems to me like it's a good hedge for the miner i mean 2025 i you know i think we're going to be in the grips of seriously high commodity prices by then i don't i don't see what we see now unfold in improving in particularly by then presumably it's an onshore lng kind of gas you know they're going to get direct offtake um fossil fuel you know mining's fossil fuel intensive power intensive so you know it's a good hedge against their costs yeah i think it it, it makes sense to me i mean i'm hearing a lot about miners you know that they're, they're concerned about rising energy costs and and you know there's a lot of them shifting to renewables even like making their transport even electrified, which is interesting. So there's interest in efficient energy efficiency shifts happening in the mining world, which which we often overlook, I think. But yeah, ultimately, it sounds like a good hedge to me. I think the other thing that we're seeing in kind of more um, Western markets is that idea of demand response. So, you know, you might have your, your kind of large LNG plant that you use for the mine, but on days where that's not needed or the full capacity isn't needed, you can feed that back into the grid and kind of there's another hedge and there's another potential revenue stream for you then. Um, you know, I, I don't know at what stage kind of that's that's going to be super useful for the, the South African grid, but certainly as you look to future-proof it and build it out, that's that's one option for them to explore. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a really interesting idea. I mean, uh, I mean, I suppose the, you know, the, the, the additional context in South Africa is that, you know, they do have what feels like sort of endemic uh, load shedding where, you know, there are sort of these rolling blackouts. ESCOM is, you know, sort of struggling to maintain its its, its power generation fleet. And, and the idea of sort of extra power coming into the grid, I'm sure the people who live in South Africa would probably uh, appreciate. I mean, I think... Obviously, with these things, there's always a question about uh, about how flexible the grid is, isn't there? And about how well set up ESCOM is to to sort of you know handle that point where they can act as an as an off taker as well as a supplier. But I think you know certainly, I mean, I think that idea about sort of independence for uh, independent generation is going to be really appealing. And I suppose you know both for the mine and you know presumably people living around. I think I guess it's that interesting question, isn't it? You know. To what extent does LNG sort of stack up against the alternatives? Does South Africa import any LNG? Does it import any coal, or is it self-sufficient in in the coal that fires its power plants? So it's 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 a major it's a major coal producer. Um, so that's that's where a lot of its coal comes from, and I think that's part of the problem, part of the challenge around the energy transition for South Africa is clearly that you know they've got this incredible coal resource 
which you know can be used for cheap power generation and and the idea of you know saying to south africa where obviously i mean you know unemployment is something like sort of 35% something like that and you know poverty is high to say to south africa that they have to import gas uh and then you know lng price on a global basis and then use that to to generate power rather than the you know using the, the that domestic coal resource as a challenge whereas this you know this 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 using this uh, domestic lng resource would be a fantastic opportunity so you know again it kind of plays into that sort of uh, energy independence idea doesn't it sort of you know how do we see energy security it kind of feels like it's going to have to be an, an, an all of the above situation but to, i suppose you know we again come back to that question of how do we square that with that needs to cut emissions and i think you know obviously ivanhoe has taken a position that that lng is going to be uh, preferable to you know a coal-fired grid uh but uh you know as damon says you know there's there are there are sort of you know renewable energy options um south africa is you know working towards becoming a hydrogen producer which is also obviously going to be an interesting move so i think you know there, there are going to be a number of uh, interesting uh, balls in the air and it'll be interesting to see how well this uh, lng commitment might go down with Ivanhoe's uh, domestic uh, shareholders in Canada and how that's kind of squared. But uh, listen, I, I, I'm not, I would very happily talk about South Africa for another uh, another hour or so, but I, I, I do see that we're running out of time. So I'd just like to say uh, thank you to Damon. Thank you, Andrew. Both, uh, both really uh, appreciated your uh, contributions today. Uh, and that is it from me. I've been Ed Reed. Thank you very much. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.